Well, good morning. You know, one of the things I love about what I get to do every weekend here at New Spring is I get the opportunity to give you strategies for winning. I was taught when I was a kid to be a good loser. How many of you remember when you were a kid, especially guys probably, you were taught to be a good loser? Well, I don't know that I've ever been a good loser. I hope I've always been a gracious loser, but I hate losing. I don't like losing at anything. I never have. I've never learned to like it. And in fact, I'm probably a little more competitive than the average person. Several years ago, I remember I went to a seminar on leadership being conducted by a psychiatrist and a motivational speaker. And he gave each one of the participants in the conference a a paper with various ordinary designs on it. And he said, as we were getting ready for his lecture, he said, just doodle on these. He said, you don't understand what they mean to you yet, but he said, "Uh, we'll have some fun with these in a few minutes and we'll talk about what they mean. So uh, we did, we doodled on them and I can't remember what all the designs were, but I remember there was one that was a grid, had a lot of squares. I don't recall how many, there were more than nine, just a grid. But in any event, I doodled on it for a while. And so he got up and he began to talk to us about what they meant. So he said, well, one of them was kind of like, this is your home life and this is, you know, this part of your life. And, but he came to the grid and he said, now, he said, you may have synced up with this mentally and you might not have. He said, if you saw this grid as a tic-tac-toe game, then your mind understood what this was about. It's about competition. He said, if you don't have X's and O's on here, he said, forget about it. It doesn't make any difference. He said, now, here's the thing. He said, uh, some people don't like competition. So he said, if you have X's and O's at random in there without any sequential line of winning game, he said, that means you will avoid competition. You will do your best to get away from it. He said, if on the other hand, you have lines of X's and O's revealing winning games, he said, that means you have a healthy view of competition and you like to play. He said, I don't think anybody would have done this, but he said, in case anybody covered up the entire grid with either O's or X's, you will do anything to win. And he said, you may lose, but they'll have to kill you first. I promise you. I looked down at mine. It was a field of X's. I promise. And that's how I've lived my life. I, I don't like losing. I hope I'm always gracious. But I am, I've always been the kind of person that I might lose, but you better be prepared to kill me. Now, through life, though, as I've aged and matured, I hope that I've learned the difference between losing something that doesn't matter at all, like a game of some sort, and losing it some area of my life where I can't afford to lose. Today, I want to talk to you about a winning strategy in an area where you can't afford to lose. And could I just say to each one of us today, there are some areas in your life where you can't afford to lose. Because if you lose... Something will go away that cannot, are you listening to me? Because see, here's the deal. Forgive me for breaking a sentence, but Americans believe they can lose and then we'll get something else. We are in a very disposable culture. You know, if I lose my car, I get another car. If I lose my house, I get another house. And thank God for the affluence that we have that allows us to have that kind of thinking. But I just want us to understand there are some things that you can lose that you can't get back. If you have a home today, if you lose that home, I'm talking about your family, you can't get another one. If you lose God's perfect will in your life, you can't get, God, get back God's perfect will. There are just some things in life where there are no do-overs, and you can't afford to lose. So my goal this morning is to give you a strategy, a winning strategy that will help you. And I, if you watch my blog or read my blog this week, I promised before you got here that if you would employ the strategy that I'm going to teach you today, your life would be at least 50% better. Your relationships, your home, your family would be at least 50% better. That's a huge promise. But are you interested in that? 
I mean, if, if what I can teach you this morning will make your life 50% better, unless you're already so good at this that maybe it will skew the percentages. But my guess is every one of us needs a lot of growth in this particular area. But I just want to make the point this morning that there are some things, there are some areas in your life where you can't afford to lose. The battle is so big that if you lose, you won't be able to recover what you've lost. I want to go back to the Old Testament because we're going to read a story from the life of the children of Israel and Moses and it's all about when they were leaving Egypt and on their way to the promised land. Just real quickly, let me give you a little background. The Israelites were God's chosen people, God's chosen nation. 400 years before, they had just been a dad and 12 sons. And one of those 12 sons wound up in Egypt, the, the story of Joseph. Joseph wound up in Egypt, and God blessed him. And before long, the whole family came over to Egypt. And over several hundred years, they became a mighty nation of somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million people. And the Egyptians looked out one day, and although they had been favorable about the Israelites for a while, they saw this fast-growing, fast-multiplying race of people, and they said, if we don't do something about these people, they're going to take over our country. So the Pharaoh decided what he would do is he would make them a slave state, and they would become the backbone of the labor force. And that's a horrible thing, and unfortunately, there's a piece of it in the history of our nation. But that's just greed. And Pharaoh decided that that's what would happen, that he would make the Israelites slaves. But God had a will and God had a purpose and a plan for the people of Israel. And one day he called a guy named Moses and he said, Moses, I've got a job for you and here's the job. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt and I'm going to have you lead them to this nation that's going to be their own. And God used the expression, he said it's a land that flows with milk and honey. It meant that it was a land of prosperity and blessing and beauty and grace. Now, God did a lot of things to get Pharaoh softened up. If you've you know, if you've read the Bible or seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know that God sent all these plagues on Pharaoh, and, and eventually God just made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So that there came a time when Pharaoh said to the Israelites, just go, get out of here. And so Moses takes off, leading two and a half to three and a half million people to the place where God wants them to go. But now, <laughs> could I just make the point, obvious point, that you can't make any fast moves with three million people? You know, I mean, just watch what happens when, unfortunately, a hurricane will hit the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Coast, and you see some of these cities with a million people or two million people, and you see how difficult it is to evacuate everybody, and that's with automobiles and, and airplanes and all kinds of mechanized transportation. So there, there was no way to make any fast moves with this big crowd of people. And here was Moses, one leader, leading this entire group of people, and they're on their way to the Promised Land. But in between Egypt and the Promised Land, they're going to have to fight a series of battles because time after time they're going to go through the territory of peoples who do not want the Israelites there. And so that's what we're going to come across today. We're going to see a battle. We're going to like find this little parentheses of time, this battle that Moses and the Israelites are going to fight. And the first thing I want you to understand, eventually we're going to get to the book of Exodus chapter 17. But before we get to Exodus, we're going to look in the book of Deuteronomy real quickly, because years after this battle, God's going to be talking with Moses about what happened back on this day. And it's, it's in this retrospective talk with Moses that we learn the nature of this particular battle. This is in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. God says to Moses, never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were struggling behind or straggling behind. They had no fear of God. 
Now, here's what I want you to think about. When the Israelites are on their way, you know, they're traveling. Not everybody has the ability to keep up with the fast movers and shakers. There are people that sort of lag behind. They're just a little bit behind. They're stragglers. They're moving slower. Sometimes it would be the people who might be, as we might say, challenged or handicapped. Sometimes it might be the pregnant or it might be children or, or people who were ill and just could not move as fast as the rest of the group. They were, they were sort of in this, they, they were protected because the advanced forces were there. They, so these people were in the back, they were safe, at least as far as the Israelites thought, and they were traveling more slowly. Here come the Amalekites. These are such brutal people that instead of making a frontal assault against the Israelites and attacking the army, they circle around and they attack the people on the backside. And they actually kill the women and the children and the pregnant and the infirm. That was their way of attacking. Now, now guys and ladies, here's the deal. When you read the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, it's filled with stories. And sometimes we wonder, what in the world does God have all these stories there for? The Bible tells us in the New Testament. The stories are put there for our example so that we can learn about life. I mean, what we learned that's so valuable from the Old Testament is the story of people interacting with God. And here, I think we have an incredible picture of the battle that you and I face. Because just as you have a God who loves you, you have an enemy. The Bible calls him Satan or the devil or Lucifer. And he's not this hideous caricature that you see on the jacket of, CD jacket of a, you know, of, a, of, a, of a rock group or whatever. Or in some hideous you know, movie. I mean, he's a sophisticated angel. And he's your enemy. But what you need to understand about him is he is so much like the Amalekites who are his people. He, he has no mercy. Satan has no good for you. He can put out temptations that look attractive and look beautiful. And you can think that those temptations have your best interest at heart. But they don't. It's just him attacking you from the rear. And by the way, doesn't he know how to attack you when you're vulnerable? And so Moses and the Israelites engage the Amalekites because they have been attacked from the rear cowardly, wickedly, brutally. They've been hit. Now here's the point I want to get across to you. They have to win this battle. You don't want to lose to anybody, but you sure would not. If you were the Israelites, you surely would not want to lose to the Amalekites because these are, I mean, losing to them would be worse than death. This is not a fight they can afford to lose. With that in mind, I want you to look at what the Bible has to say about this battle in Exodus chapter 17 and find, if you will, the 10th verse of this chapter. So Joshua, just real quick, in case you weren't here last year for our life, Joshua is Moses' protege. At this point, we're going to see that Joshua, let's look at verse 10. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Joshua now is the commander-in-chief. He is leading the army to go to the back of the camp and attack, counterattack the Amalekites. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand... The Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired, he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding his hands, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. 
just like the Israelites had a battle they had to win, you and I are going to have some battles that we have to win. And in many cases, as American Christians, we're not doing so well with some of these battles. You cannot afford to lose your family. You can't afford to lose God's perfect will in your life. We can't afford to lose this marvelous nation that God has ceded to us and granted to us. And yet in many cases, we're not doing so well at holding on. We're not doing so well in fighting these battles that we can't afford to lose. What is it that we need to learn? What's the missing piece that we need to pick up on? I believe it's simply this. I think we can draw a lesson from Aaron and her and what they did to help Moses and help the Israelites win that battle. We live in an, we live in an age where people seek the spotlight. People speak, seek to be heard. They want to be that one voice. They want to be, I mean, these are the days of American Idol in which we see who's going to be number one, who's going to be the star, who's going to be the one that everybody writes about, who's the diva, who's the prima donna, who's the superstar who gets his name or his number on a sneaker, on, on, on some sort of Nike sneaker. And that has seeped down into our, our families. Who's going to be the guy? Who's going to be the gal? Who's going to be the star here? Back when the motion picture industry was cranking up, it wasn't long after movies were out that Motion Picture Academy decided they would give out awards for the best actor. We call those the Oscars. But along the way, you know, it came to these people who were passing out the awards and no doubt to the actors and actresses that there were people who weren't necessarily stars, but they made the movies. And so in 1936, there there was another Oscar that began to, or actually two more Oscars that were given out to the best performance in a supporting role, best supporting actor, best supporting actress. I'm just telling you today, for all of us who want to win when we can't afford to lose, it may all come down to, will we lend our names for nomination for best supporting actor or best supporting actress? What if we can't be the star? What if we can't be the person that our family revolves around? What if we decide that, you know, I so can't afford to lose this fight that maybe the role that God has for me is to lift up the arms of somebody else around here? Because if we would do that, I want to tell you right now, if you would do that, if I would do that, if we would determine, you know what, I don't have to be the prima donna here. I don't have to be the diva here. I don't have to be the superstar here. It's the battle that's important. That's what's at stake here. And what I need to do is to just get in there and begin to help lift up the arms of other people who are leaders in my life. Let me talk about that for a few moments. If you're into notes this morning, I got, I got several lines I just want to leave before you. We live in an age, and, and we're, of course, in post-Watergate era. And for those of you who are really young and you don't remember Watergate, we had a president who disappointed us. We had Vietnam. We had leaders who disappointed us during Vietnam. And during that 60s, 70s era, boy, something settled into our nation in which there was a, a rebellion against leadership, a suspicion of anyone who was a leader. And we still have a touch of that with us left today. But I want us to understand that we can't afford that because it was God who instituted leaders. There are two mistakes that people make when it comes to leaders. Here's the first mistake that people make, and it's this one. People underestimate the importance 
of a leader. And here's the thing. You and I, if we're going to be successful in life, if we want our lives to be advantaged, we should never underestimate the importance of a God-anointed leader. Let's talk about our story and see what I mean. Notice that when Moses got tired in this situation and his arms started drooping and he couldn't hold them up anymore, I noticed several things that stand out to me. Number one, I noticed that nobody else could do that job. I mean, there were three million people there. And it just could, you know, the common sense says, hey, you've got a guy, you got a leader, can't hold his arms up anymore. Hey, let's bring somebody else in here to hold up his arms or hold up her arms. And we'll get, but the thing was, God wouldn't notice someone else. From the very beginning of time, God has chosen leaders. And for the Israelites, there wasn't plan B. There wasn't another person who could stand in there and hold up his arms. See, the thing that we have to understand is God-ordained leadership matters to him. The very first sin was rebellion. Satan rebelled against God. And it's still going on today, rebellion against authority. Now, somebody could say, well, why couldn't somebody else step in there and hold up his or her arms for the, in the place of Moses? And the answer comes back because there was a connection between Moses and God. And there is a connection between God and every God-appointed leader in your life and in my life. God called Moses one day and said, I want you to do this job. And from that point on, Moses was vulnerable. He had signed on to be God's personal representative in that role. And so because of that calling, there was a connection between Moses and God. Now, here's the thing I want to say to all of us, and I'm going to repeat this throughout the message. We have a disposable mindset in our culture today. And I, God knows, I, I know that many of you have struggled through divorce, and I wouldn't add to your load at all. And, and I know that many of you had situations you just didn't have any choice in. And, and, and I believe you would be my biggest fans in my saying what I need to say today. But we have a culture today that says, you know what, if I'm unhappy with my husband, I'll get somebody else in here. If I'm unhappy with my wife and she's not making me happy, you know, if I'm bored with her, I'll just run her out of here and I'll bring somebody else in here. I want you to know that when you stand at an altar and you commit your love and you pledge your affection and you pledge your fidelity and your faithfulness, listen to me. We're going to talk about this in a series called Love Affair that's coming September. It's just so important for us to understand that when you vow your love before God, I mean, there is an anointing that takes place in a wedding. There is now an anointed leader in this family. There is an anointed man. There is an anointed woman, just like kings were anointed back in the Bible days. If you have a home where there is a man, a father, a husband in that home, God has anointed him to be a leader. If you're in a single family home and you're, you know, you're a man, you're the anointed leader. If you're a woman, you're the anointed leader. And if you have parents, they're the anointed leaders in your life. You can't just say, I want to run this person out and run somebody else in. Okay, if there's infidelity, if there's adultery, then God gives us an out for that one. Not necessary, it doesn't necessarily have to be. God does give us an out for that one. But absent that, whenever there's a marriage, there's an anointing on that man and on that woman. And God doesn't see a plan B. 
And God doesn't say, well, if you're not sexually fulfilled and your wife's not making you happy, and that woman down there at the office is kind of flirting with you a little bit, well, maybe, you know, who knows, God's a God of love and, and God's forgiving and all that. And, and so I'm just going to run my wife out of here and run somebody else in here. I want to tell you, you can't do that. There's no plan B with God. Once God puts his anointing, you know, it could be, and I know that a lot of our teens, we have about 90 of them that are headed for camp today, and so there may not be a whole lot of teens in here today, but I would just say this. You know, every teen gets to the place where all of a sudden mom and dad don't know anything. And it's like, you know what? I don't want to listen to my mom and my dad anymore. They don't know anything. They're not part of my generation. They don't understand my friends. They don't understand my life. They just crimp my style. I'm just going to basically shut them out and run them out, and I'm going to bring in a whole new group of advisors. I want you to know you can't do that because your parents are God-anointed. You say, well, Mark, I have a hard time following leaders because leaders are flawed. Well, duh. (laughs) Did you just wake up? Of course leaders are flawed. See, here's the thing. You know, I talk to people every once in a while, and they'll say something like this to me. They'll say, well, Mark, you know, and they're sort of bragging on their rebellion. They say, I just have a hard time with leadership. I, I just, I don't respond real well to authority. Well, first of all, what you just told me is you're an abject loser. There's a line in this world between winners and losers, and it all has to do with how you respond to leadership. But what I often want to tell these people who just say, well, I don't like leaders in my life, What I want them to understand is that most of the time, leaders really don't ask for the job. You see, here's something that leaders understand. They're they're, they're rebellious people who want authority, and they're true leaders. One thing that leaders understand is when you have authority, responsibility goes with it. I didn't think about this as clearly as I did until just recently a pastor called me, very successful pastor, great church. And he had a group, a cell group of leaders in his church that were kind of rising up against him and challenging him. And he, here's what he said to me. He said, Mark, people today want authority without responsibility. And that's why we're so critical today. We have this sort of pseudo-integrity that says, I can poke at any leader in my life because I have the integrity. But often what they really want is they want to make the calls without taking the heat. I could be talking to somebody here today, and you just say, well, Mark, my parents just don't understand me, and I just want to get them out of my life. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you paying the mortgage? Do you you even know what the energy bills for your family are? You see what I'm saying? There's just something in the human spirit that's sort of warped, and oftentimes we find it easy to criticize leaders in our lives because what we want is we want to make the call without taking the responsibility. When that pastor called me, I remember something my mother said one time when I was a little kid. Shocked the fool out of me. And we were in a small church, and people used to call my mother, and she was sort of like the, you know, cry-on-the-shoulder person, and, and people would call her and talk to her about their issues and stuff. And I was accustomed to being in the house, playing in the house, listening to my mom talk on the phone to people who call with issues. And I remember this guy called one day, and he, he just called. And he was really upset with my dad, didn't think my dad was leading the church right. And he was critical. And of all things, he's being critical of my mom, which I thought was a little bit crazy, but he, I didn't really know what was going on until I heard my mom make this comment. And when I heard it, I mean, I'm, I'm about six, seven years old, but it shocked me. And I still remember it to this day. should tell you this before I get into this. We had a little five and dime store. For those of you who are not old like me, that was the precursor to the Walmarts and Targets and stuff. We had a five and dime store in Fort Worth called Mott's. And just as an item of information, 
You could buy a Bible at Mott's. All, everybody in church knew that. You could buy a $2.98 paperback Bible at Mott's. Now, I just tell you that for a reason, because now I'm listening to my mother talk, listen, talking to this guy, and she's listening to him criticize my dad. And after a few moments, I just hear her say this. And I mean, it got my attention. She said, you know what? If you're unhappy with pastor, why don't you just go to Mott's, buy you a $2.98 Bible, and go start you a church? She said, the world needs a lot more churches. You know what she was saying to him? She was saying, look, buddy, if you want the authority, then take the responsibility. We have a nation of critics today. And one of the reasons why I preached this message this morning is I'm not sure America can survive with the kind of bitter criticism that's going on. Could I just tell you something? And I don't ever get into politics because I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. I stay out of that. I try to stay right with this book. I preach the word. You should be in politics. But I know the moment I preach to you, some of you are Democrats, some of you are Republicans, some of you, your politics will be progressive, some of you, your politics will be conservative. That's your business. But here's what's my business. I've lived long enough in America to know this. The political winds are going to change. Sometimes it's going to be your guy. Sometimes it's not going to be your guy. Sometimes that person in office is going to be in your party. Sometimes that person is not going to be in your party. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, like Aaron and her, you have the responsibility, spiritually speaking, to hold up that person to the Lord. You know, President Clinton was in office for eight years. And I know that some of you didn't like President Clinton. But I think it was embarrassing some of the things that the Christian community said in jokes about President Clinton. President Bush is in office now. Sometimes I think it's terrible, some of the hateful things that are said about him. I'm not saying you can't agree or disagree. I mean, we're Americans. We, we, we believe in democracy. And yes, we ought to be advocates of our position. But I will tell you something. The moment someone is elected to the White House, that's the best leader we're going to have for four years. Maybe eight. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have the permission to hate that person. I mean, you don't have the permission to hate people in Congress or to hate Supreme Court justices. We need to love them and pray for them. Vote the way you believe. But the Bible tells us this very clearly, many, many times, that authority is set up by God. And that these people who sit in authority, yes, they're flawed. Of course they're flawed. If you and I were there, we would be flawed. But the Bible says that God has placed them there. Could I just say one more thing today about a leader. Here's the thing about a leader. You know, until God takes his hand off a leader, that leader is irreplaceable. Because God assigns leaders. And that's why I'm just saying to you today, you know, somebody will say, well, Mark, I don't like my husband. He's just difficult for me to live with, and I can't get along with him. I'm just going to replace him. Listen, let me tell you something. If you stood there and vowed your love, absent infidelity, God has an anointing on his life, and you can't replace him. If you're unhappy with your wife and she hasn't committed adultery, she may give you difficult times. She may be hard to live with on days. But you cannot replace her. You cannot replace your parents. If God puts an anointing on her, it's so easy to say, well, you know, we'll just bring somebody else in here. What's your plan of succession? The truth of the matter is, as long as God has an anointing on a leader, that leader is irreplaceable because God has put her there. God has put him there. The Israelites couldn't just run somebody else in to hold his arms up. Moses was God's guy. 
So it's a mistake to underestimate the importance of a leader. You know where I'm going with this next one, don't you? It's a mistake to overestimate the ability of a human leader. You know, when you love a leader, it's easy to believe that leader can do anything, isn't it? You know, when you're a kid and you're small and your parents are your idols, you think your parents can do anything. You think your dad could do anything. You think your mom could do anything. You know, if you, if you love your husband and, and, and he's just the greatest guy in the world, it's so easy to think, man, he can do anything. If you love your mom and she's awesome, you just think, wow, mom, mom is unlimited. And sometimes there's a negative aspect to that because we begin to have unreal expectations of a human leader. And I believe most of the Israelites love Moses. And when he was up there with his arms up and they were winning the battle, they said, man, that's our God, that's our leader. But there came a time when Moses, when the blood started flowing out of Moses' hands into his arms, and his hands got pale and they began to tremble. And before long, Moses couldn't hold his arms up anymore because leaders, listen to me, leaders reach the edge of their ability. No matter how good a human leader is, he's still not God. Leaders reach the edge of their ability. I know I live at the edge of mine all the time. Number two, leaders get tired. Like Moses got tired. George Patton said, General Patton said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that's the reason oftentimes I think battles get lost, that we can't afford to lose. Leaders get tired and their arms begin to drop because they're tired. Leaders get discouraged. Every one of us who's led understands that chemistry between you and God where God has placed you in a role and nobody else understands that role. And that can make you feel so alone, can it? I'm talking to mothers here today. And sometimes being a mother makes you feel totally alone, totally exposed, totally, totally vulnerable. I'm talking to husbands and dads here today. There are times when you get in your car and you drive and you think there's not a person in the world who knows how I really feel. And I can't tell it. There are managers today. There are heads of businesses. There are business owners here. And it's up to you to, to keep the business going and to come up with a strategy for the next 10 years. It's up to you to make sure that the checks go out and payrolls met. It's up to you to try to bring in the best employees to the company. And you walk up and down the aisles of your business and you meet people that work for you. And yet, even though you're surrounded by people, sometimes you feel so totally alone because you say to yourself, there's not a person here who knows what it feels like to be me. Leaders get discouraged. In the words of that eminent philosopher, Dirty Harry, leaders better than anybody else know their limitations. But here's the one I want to get to today and make sure that we all understand. Are we ready for this? Leaders can fail. Let's be real blunt about this. Here are the Israelites. They're God's people. They're being attacked by the Amalekites, God's enemies. What happens if Moses' arms are not held up? Could I just be real blunt with you? They lose. You say, well, Mark, I don't understand that. God's a loving God, and God's, you know, this great God up in the sky. Listen, leaders can lose. Families can go down. Good families can go down. I've seen it. It's broken my heart. I've watched marriages break up, and I look at the husband and wife, and I think these are two of the finest people in the world. I would leave my children with them. How did this marriage break up? Because leaders can fail. We can still lose this nation, ladies and gentlemen. 
just because God has been so good to us for the last nearly 300 years and has given us the borders of two oceans and watched over us in the past, America could still go down. Leaders can fail. So it's a mistake to underestimate the importance of a leader. It's also a mistake to overestimate the ability of a leader. What I love about Aaron and her, and the lesson that we draw today is this, Aaron and her had the balance down. They had it right. First of all, they knew they couldn't replace Moses, but they could help him. They were never going to get the Oscar for the best, best actor, but they could support Moses. They could help Moses. And this is the one that I wish I knew how to articulate. They could replace some of their leader's lost strength with some of their own strength. I'm talking to some of your husbands today, and your wife is just totally wiped out. Trying to be a wife, trying to be a mother, in many cases trying to lead a career at the same time, she is just wasted. And you know what many men do? Oh, man, we get home. Where's that lazy boy and the remote? And the kids are upset. Hey, do something about those kids. How about taking some of your strength and giving it to her? That's what Aaron and her did. Moses couldn't hold his arms up anymore. They're going to lose. But Aaron and her said, we're going to give some of our strength to Moses. You know, there's a selfless quality to what they did. Here's what I love about this. Because it would be easy for Aaron and her to say, hey, not our problem. This boy, I've been telling him to work out. He should have been pumping iron. Now he can't hold his arms up. But they did. And what I love about Aaron and her is what they did, listen to me, is bigger than themselves and even bigger than Moses. Because it was the battle that was at stake. And oddly enough, humanly speaking, this story is about Aaron and her. I want to show you a phrase. Would you take your Bibles one more time if you still have Exodus 17 open? Look down at verse 12 again. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and her found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady unto sunset. Look at this. As... A result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek. As a result. As a result of what? As a result of Joshua? As a result of Moses? No, as a result of Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms. So often we want to be that diva. We want to be that performer. We want to be the person out front. When in reality, often the stars are the people who are behind the stage, behind the scenes, who are the best actors, best actresses in a supporting role. This and I'm through. I have to tell a story now that is painful for me to tell. And even though I've told it a few times around the country, every time I tell the story, there's a side of me that doesn't want to tell it because it goes back to a very painful time in my life. I've been here for 22 years, and uh, in my early 30s, I thought I was grown at the time, but looking back, I think I was a kid. For those of you who were at Messiah New Spring, and you remember those days, it was like God gave me a crash course in pastoring. 
because it seemed like I had huge hurdles to overcome, and yet at the same time we were growing. But in the early 90s, I had to swallow, and the church had to deal with what to me is one of the bitterest pills of my life. A staff member that I love very much, a student pastor, fell into very deep sin. It rocked me, rocked our church. And I know this sounds melodramatic, but I'll tell you there were days when I didn't think the sun was ever going to shine again. I'd never been through anything like that. I didn't know what to do. I was thrust into all kinds of environments that I'd never dreamed of. And I was hurt at levels that I don't know that I could ever begin to describe to you. I didn't have a whole lot of time to grieve because right after this all hit, it was time for youth camp. And without a student pastor in our church was much smaller at the time. It fell to me as pastor to go with our kids to senior camp. I knew they needed me, and they just needed someone to lead the group. So Mary Alice and I took the high school kids down to camp. The camp was set up like this. There were morning services and evening services. There would be music, and a speaker would speak. And at the end of the camp services, like many of you, have been, if you've encountered church camp, you know that there's an invitation given where kids can come forward and make commitments to Christ, to rededicate their lives, accept Jesus as Savior, whatever. Just all kinds of important decisions took place in those invitations. I was not on the speaking rotation because I wasn't supposed to be at that camp. No one knew that I was coming, and so the docket was filled with speakers in the morning and speakers in the evening. I'd been to that camp for years, and and I'd never seen anything happen as was happening in 1992. Because every time I've been to one of those services, someone, maybe two, three, four kids, would walk forward in morning services and evening services and make decisions. But it was the strangest thing. It was like that when the speaker would get through speaking and the invitation would be given, it would be just quiet. No one came forward. No one moved. It was strange. Everybody felt the strangeness of it. Speakers felt it. Students felt it. Counselors felt it. Speakers spoke on Monday night. No one moved. Tuesday morning, no one moved. Tuesday night, no one moved. Wednesday morning, no one moved. Wednesday night, no one moved. Thursday morning, it was starting to be strange. Thursday lunch, the camp director came, got together with the other pastors in the group, and they came to my cabin, knocked on my door, and they said, Mark, We've been praying about this and talking about this, and we feel like you should speak tonight. Now, guys, I've been speaking since I was 16 years old. I mean, just I've always been the kind of preacher, wind me up and let me go. I love to speak. I love to preach. I love to communicate. But for the first time in my adult life, I did not want to preach. I didn't want to stand in front of a group of people. I was hurting so bad. I was so weak. All I want to do is go back to my cabin after service and close the door and sit in the darkness. I was hurting that bad. And these guys came to my cabin. They said, we want you to preach tonight. We feel like you should. And I said, I am not going to speak tonight. I'm not going to speak anytime. You guys know why I don't want to speak. You know what I've been going through. And I will not speak tonight. Finally, I convinced them of that. and They left my cabin. At lunch that day, they came back to me in the dining room, and they said, Mark, we've been praying about this some more, and we really believe that you need to be our speaker tonight. And I said, you guys are hard of hearing. And you just can't process reality. I told you, I will not speak tonight. I don't have the strength to speak. I'm wasted. I don't, I don't have a message. 
I don't feel like standing in front of people. I will not speak tonight. Dinner came, and that same group came back to me, and they said, Mark, we really believe God wants you to preach tonight. And I said, I've told you and I've told you in a minute, I will not speak tonight. And finally, the camp director, who's a little bit of a smart aleck, stood up and reared himself up to his 5'8 height, and he looked at me. And he said, let me tell you what's going to happen tonight, Mark. He said, we're going to have a worship service. And when that's over, I'm going to get up and I'm going to say our speaker tonight is Mark Hoover from Messiah Baptist Church in Wichita. And he said, if you don't get up and speak, we won't have a speaker tonight. Well, I knew I was dead. So I called all our teens and our counselors together, and there were about 45 of them, and I said, you know why I don't feel like preaching tonight. And you know why I'm dead and why I'm wasted, and all of us feel the pain of this, and you understand why I don't feel like preaching, but I don't have any choice. I've got to speak tonight. And I said, the only way I can go up there is if you will pray for me. That began a sequence of events that a lot of people remember. In 1996, I was speaking in West Texas. I got off the airplane in Midland, Texas, and the pastor met me, and he started talking about the outpouring of God's Spirit, how he'd read about it in past times. And he said, you know, the only time in my life I ever saw the outpouring of God's Spirit was the night that I'm about to talk about. Those kids made a circle around me, and they began to pray. And they said, Lord, I still remember these teenagers praying. They said, Lord, you know our pastor is weak, and you know he's hurting, and he doesn't feel like preaching in that. Father, you've got to come help him. And for what seemed like 30 seconds, but it probably had to be 30 minutes, these, these kids stood around me and prayed for me. When I got up to speak that night, it was like I had a power that I didn't know anything about. I preached. And listen, when I got through, and some of you, you're young adults now, you were there, or you counselors, you remember that. I didn't even get a chance to get to the invitation. I mean, just as I started to wind the message down, people stood up and began to come forward. The camp had a curfew at 10 o'clock. The only time in the history of that camp that curfew was ever relaxed was that night. The curfew that night was 12 o'clock because at 1130 there were still lines of people accepting Christ as Savior. A pastor's wife got saved that night. Why? Because I'm a great leader? Because I'm a super communicator? I was dead. The reason is a group of kids got around me and their leader who was weak and wasted and tired and they held his arms up. And God came and gave the victory. Okay, let's touch the wheels down. Who in your life needs you to hold their arms up. I'm talking to some of you. Your marriage is just constant bickering. And if I were to ask you what's wrong, you could, you could list out for me all the things that your partner does wrong. Could I ask you a question? Have you ever tried holding your arms up? Have you ever tried holding his arms up? You say, Mark, my parents just drive, my, drive me crazy. They're just after me all the time. Have you ever tried holding their arms up? I mean, you say, Mark, what do you mean by that metaphor? I mean, first of all, just let them know you're for them. 
Just let the person know you're on their side. Let them know you're for them. Tell them you're their biggest fan and mean it. I mean, pray for them. And listen, how many of you pray for your wives? How many of you pray for your husbands? How many of you pray for your parents? How many of you pray for your supervisor? How many of you pray for your congresspeople? How many of you pray for your president? We could still lose this war. I don't mean the one in Iraq. I mean the wars that we can't afford to lose. We could still lose our families. We could still lose our nation. Well, I'm in way over time this morning, so I'm going to stop at this point and let the Holy Spirit talk to you about what you need to do. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward to get ready for the weekend offering. Lord, thank you for what we've learned today. May our lives change. And Father, for some of us who've been so critical of key people in our lives, may we hold them up and support them. Father, there are victories that you're waiting to give us. I believe there are wins that you want us to have that will happen when we start doing this. In Jesus' name I pray. Could I just say, as the ushers are getting ready for the offering, you have a, a visitor uh, or guest card that you got when you came in today. It's also a piece of information for all of us. There's a place where you can let us know how we can help you. If you've got a decision to make, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, or if you want more information about the church, you can let us know that. And you can fill this out. You can drop it in the boxes by the back doors or at the bottom of the staircases. Or you can give it to one of the... Um, of one of the greeters at the doors back there. We want to know how we can, how, how we can be a help and a blessing to you. Well, it's, right, it's time right now for us to worship the Lord with our gifts. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, here's what God has said, that if we will put him first in this matter of finances, that he will open the windows of heaven. You never give to God out of a deficit situation. Because when you give to him, he gives to you. Now, obviously, God does Here's the thing. Some of you are getting ready to write a check. Drop some currency in the offering plate, or you give online. You do know that God is not going to go broke if he doesn't get your money, right? Because God owns everything. This is not about money. This is about trust. This is about you having confidence in God that God will keep his word. And I've learned, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I believe in tithing. The Bible teaches us that the tenth belongs to God. So I bring that each week along with my offering. You know what I've discovered is I've never missed that because God just blesses in so many wonderful ways. And so, you know, sometimes we say, well, I don't know if I, if I can tithe because I'm afraid I'll miss the tenth. You know what you should be afraid of is missing the blessing God is going to give you because it's not about money. It's about confidence in him. So uh, God bless you. You guys are awesome. I mean, your gifts make so much ministry possible. What you do financially make so many things work, and, and you guys are the best in the world. We're going to just have a brief prayer, and then I'm going to have, ask Lance to come. Lord, bless this offering. Bless these givers. We know you'll honor your word, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name.